Howdy folks, Tom Bartley here. This is a special uh, Biota podcast recording and the first of the Visions of the Evo Grid. As I mentioned in the last Biota Live, Visions of the Evo Grid is designed to allow participants and observers of the Evo Grid to record and discuss their thoughts and ideas with regards to what they would like to see with the Evo Grid in the future. This evening I have the uh, opportunity to talk to Scott Schaefer about his own particular visions associated with the Evo Grid. Scott's background obviously is, uh, you know, with regards to seeing the Evo Grid announced initially at a grey thumb and also kind of continuing and following on with regards to the Evo Grid development um, through Bruce Damer's talks at the grey thumbs uh, in Silicon Valley and also obviously through the related biota mailing lists. But Scott has his own particular vision associated with the Evo Grid, which is why I wanted to bring him in on the first episode to give him an opportunity to talk in greater length about the way he sees the Evo Grid. Now, what use is this for the broader biota community? Well, the broader biota community can take each participant in the visions of the Evo Grid and think about their own particular kind of prickly problems or things that they're posing into the Evo Grid discussion. And also there may be things that are never actually used in the final Evo Grid that are still beneficial to the broader community. This may motivate new kinds of simulations. This may change the way existing simulations are developed. So I thought it would be an opportunity, in fact a wonderful opportunity for the biota community to get a sense of the number of different ways that the Evo Grid can go and also the kind of problems which face people who are developing projects like the Evo Grid or really artificial life in a kind of broad context. So as I said, this evening I have the, the privilege of talking to Scott Schaefer with regards to his own particular visions of the Evo Grid and that is going to be the show this evening. Hello, Scott. Hey, Tom. Good to talk to you. Likewise. So, um, I mean, I've given some introduction that I pre-recorded, but the idea with regards to the visions of the Evo Grid project is getting a wide variety of people who have seen the Evo Grid at various stages to kind of talk about their own views about the kind of prickly problems and their own particular views with regards to the directions that the Evo Grid could take. So, it's, I mean, whilst you've been on both live, it's probably beneficial to give some introduction to who you are, what you do, and how you first heard about the Evo Grid. Sure. Uh, so my name is Scott Schaefer. I've been a professional software developer for about two decades now, and uh, and a bit of a, an artificial life hobbyist. So basically, my my first introduction. I, I'm not sure how I got turned on to the the Gray Thumb uh, group, but my introduction to the the Evo Grid project was through that. So, um, so I, I haven't been, I've been involved very kind of tangentially, more as an observer than uh, as a real participant. So can you describe the, the Grayson meeting where uh, Bruce first introduced the Evo Grid and perhaps some background to your own thinking from that initial introduction about the potential and the directions that you wanted to, to see the Evo Grid go? Sure. Uh, well... I think I'm not sure exactly when the first time Bruce presented it. Uh, for me, it's a little run together at this point. But I, as I remember, the the sort of initial vision was, uh, as I understood it, was that it would it would be a way to network uh, existing artificial life simulations, and so that they could communicate and co-evolve together, and uh, and to avoid a 
kind of code fossilization, where you know Bruce had talked about projects like the Carl Sims simulation, for example, which you know, no longer runs on uh, any systems that I know of. So, so that, that was my understanding of, of you know what the original vision was, and then it, it seemed to, to change a bit into uh, you know split into into two projects, one being the the broad and one being the deep. Um, in which the the deep was more of an artificial chemistry simulation, at least it, as I understand it. And at that point, um, yeah, I can, I can talk a little bit about kind of what what drew me to the the, the concept, um, which is I think a little different uh, compared to where it seems to be headed. Certainly. Um, yeah. Um, okay, so. What interested me about the the Evergrid idea was primarily I, I so I've cooked up a few different simulations, um, all of which I feel are sort of a prelude. <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping to make something a little grander than what I've made in the past. But one frustration that I had was that um, my real interest, I think, is it, it's it's less so the kind of emergence of of life that seems to be where EvoGrid Deep is headed um, as an attempt to, to kind of simulate and model uh, life emerging from uh, an artificial chemistry. Um, what I'm interested in more is emerging behaviors, and I saw the EvoGrid as an opportunity to you know present uh, a simulation that I, I could make with a, uh, a wide range of environments for the, the simulated creatures to evolve within. So, um, so that was. That was what sort of drew me to initially. Does that make sense, Tom? Certainly, certainly. And in terms of, I mean, your own simulation, I mean, to give some background to the kind of contemporary, you know, split of the projects, what you're describing is the EvoGrid Broad was launched last week as BioTereve. And ironically, the whole legacy associated with BioTereve and the EvoGrid Broad dates back to... Um, the late 90s with the Biota 3 conference and there was a room of probably about 40 or so simulators including Jeffrey Rentrella, uh, Gerald de Jung, um, I don't think uh, Carl Sims was there but certainly Tom Ray was there. There were a wide variety of people who kind of straddled the kind of very classical kind of late 80s artificial life simulation through the early 90s through to you know folks who still participate in Biota Live today. And they had a whiteboard up where they were drawing out what they called Biota World, which was a series of ideas about, as you say, getting these simulations into communicating. And Gerald de Jong raised his hand at one point and said, the way to do this is through XML and to have some XML communication between all these simulations. So really the idea of the XML phenotype, which drives Biota Eve, it dates back to the late 90s, in fact, to Gerald de Jong specifically, uh, with regards to this idea of Biota World. And what's particularly fascinating about Biota World is there's a section which I actually put out in the, in the Biota podcast feed where all the participants raised their hands, or not all of them, but uh, you know, probably 90% of the participants raised their hands with regards to the question um, who or... Um, how, you know, is this required for your future artificial life development? Do you, you know, have some 
uh, commitment to this vision moving forward. And like I say, about 90% of the participants raised their hands. So if we move through to about 2004, we have the Biota at Home project, which again had very similar principles about, as you say, getting these simulations communicating together. I think it was more to do with a, a kind of programmatic interface, but also obviously some XML communication. So the legacy associated with this ideas of the simulators talking um, and possibly having underlying units, energy, space, time, these kind of things, um, really dates back to the late 90s. But what interested me with the Evo grid um, from your discussion is that when Bruce first introduced it, almost as a kind of reflexive pattern, he moved back to that, you know, bio-to-world vision as a means of bringing together the community. And, I mean, in terms of your own simulation, I mean, you've gotten involved with, with Biota Eve, you know, in the past week since it's been launched. Can you talk a little bit about what you'd like to see out of Biota Eve specifically? Sure. Um, and, and am I correct in, in thinking that Biota Eve is the new name for what was uh, EvoGrid Broad? Yes. I mean, I think okay. the, the nature of the rebranding was just the kind of historical legacy associated with Biota projects already doing what the Evo Group Broad was supposed to do. And also, as you've acknowledged, the general level of confusion about what the Evo Group is at any given time, which will make these visions um, recordings particularly interesting, I'm sure, as well. So, I mean, mm -hmm. in that context, please please talk a little bit more about what you want to see about BioTareve. Okay. My original understanding of what the Evo Grid Broad was going to be was, was that it was going to kind of enable very very different types of simulations to to network and to, to talk to each other. So, you know, the, the kind of core wars um, simulations where there might not be any kind of recognizable physics. Um, I mean, there, you know, there'd be constraints within the environment, but uh, it wouldn't necessarily translate into the real world, but those would be able to network with uh, simulations that, you know, simulated real-world physics or chemistry. The, the sense I've gotten from, from reading the threads is that there's been a move towards kind of creating a, a common physics in all these simulations. You know, so, for example, a, a common, a, an agreed-upon um, passage of time and, uh, and attributes and so on. W would you say that's correct? Well, I think, I mean, the fact that there are units in the physical world doesn't eliminate the fact that, you know, you can have uh, bacteria, humans, and elephants. I mean, my sense right. is that units don't presuppose the resolution of the simulation that you're going to take. And in particular, with regards to physics, you touch on something that's very interesting because um, two simulations can have a completely different definition of what energy is in, in that context. And similarly... Mm -hmm space and time. I mean, I think um, the idea originally with BioTrieve was that there need, just needed to be visual representations between the, the simulations with the view that if you could put, for example, um, you know, a Darwin at home form into Brevet, then Brevet could accept either representing the Darwin at home form as a blob or actually the geometric representation of the Darwin at home form or a wide variety of things in between and obviously XML and all these kind of, um, you know, the, the ability to accept a certain level of detail through XML and then ignore everything else was, I think, something that um, certainly resounded with, with a few simulators in particular. Um, mm. The interesting point 
proposed by, as you say, the kind of historical legacy of the Evo Grid discussion is still the potential for, as you say, core wars to interact with RAM sticks, to interact with uh, gene pool, and whether these simulations can have any degree of commonality. I mean, if you don't take things like energy and space and time, how do you see these simulations actually actually communicating, Scott? To be honest, I, I'm I'm not necessarily sure I see the the value of them communicating, particularly if you know if, if the communication is going to be on on such kind of a lowest common denominator level, where it's it's kind of these these recognized concepts that you know different simulations can interpret different ways, but they're 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 pretty high level, like energy or whatnot. You know, to to me that that's interesting, but. Um, it seems a little limited, you know. So, so for example, if if you kind of reduce uh, the the idea that a creature has has energy and and can prey upon other creatures, and you you reduce it to that kind of that level of abstraction, then I, I'm not uh, I'm not sure if you're going to get interesting emergent behaviors from that. So the idea of biohuri specifically re- relates to a continuum and also a lot of discussion. So as we describe it currently, it is, uh, you know, um, <laughs> launch date plus five days in terms of its mm. um, ideas. I, I think the, the problem associated with these simulations into communicating is, as you've acknowledged, non-trivial. And certainly my aim initially with regards to the visualization component being something that we could at least start to discuss relates to just getting simulations talking, as you say, in perhaps not even a very meaningful way, but at least a precursory fashion. I think the the interesting interaction, and this certainly has come through correspondence with Gerald de Jung in particular, is the idea of the um, the simulation authors sitting down, looking through the XML and actually having meaningful dialogue. I mean, looking at your uh, Micropond 1 XML, for example, for me, there seem to be a number of components that could easily translate into the Nopalape um, environment. Um, so, I mean, I think the, the idea is that we put our XML phenotypes online. We then have a good degree of dialogue. We start talking about what sort of space and time and energy and these kind of things actually mean within our specific simulations. And then we have try to have some kind of you know, shared overlap. I mean, obviously, there's going to be pluses and minuses going in, in both directions in terms of, um, you know, what, what this combination of things will actually produce. But the idea is that you have some starting point to actually have this kind of dialogue as opposed to just saying this problem seems too complicated to even have a starting point. So looking at it as it is currently, obviously, it appears to be almost kind of juvenile in the triviality of the of the you know, the things that are offered. But the view is, for example, I mean, if you look at Gerald's um, XML phenotype output, it is almost exclusively structural and relates to the, the interconnections, the, the, the vertices of these um, particular tensegrities. So mm-hmm. I think what, what is interesting is that in having, you know, if, if you or I or potentially Jeffrey Ventrella or John Klein with Breve or any of the other simulators that come in, Dave Kerr with AI Planet, what have you, they, they come in and they, there is this degree of dialogue where, you know, Dave Kerr says to Gerald, well, I can import all your tensegrity vertices, but, you know, I need some more information or less information. And I mean, I think 
the trick with regards to the XML phenotype as a starting point is not even really to say that this is purely a phenotype, this is purely just a visual representation, but there is potential for um, simulators to actually have a broader discussion associated with shared genetics, as you say, um, mm -hmm. not just the idea of energy, space and time, but also um, some degree of purposefulness, maybe direction vectors, these kind of things, and then additional momentum. And what comes from this is the ability for simulators to initially start sharing this interface, but then move towards things like sharing code and all the kind mm -hmm. of stuff that people, you know, We've been talking about through Biota since Biota was formed, and I think this is a shared vision through, you know, all artificial life simulation authors. So, I mean, does that make some sense in the context of Biota Eve? Um, it, it really does, actually. That was really helpful, and and I agree. Looking at the, um, I did look at the XML phenotypes for both the Noble Ape and the, the Darwin at Home, and uh, and yeah, it, it was it was very instructive, and. Um, I think particularly with these simulations, I mean, often, you know, I find you, you run a simulation and it's, it's really hard to know what's going on looking at it and, uh, you know, how, you know, how deep it goes and how long you should wait to expect to see emergent behaviors and so on. So, you know, the, having the, the XML uh, phenotypes is a great way to, to document what's going on. Um, I, I guess my concern is, is really about... You know the potential for uh, what, what really excites me, which is uh, the, the Evo Grid sort of or Biota Eve, I should say, kind of helping to helping our creatures to evolve faster. You know that that's kind of that's what what drew me to it, and, and that's what I'm still struggling with. Okay, so to summarize that component, if you imagine that. Um as things are currently, a user downloads a particular artificial life simulation and they run it on their own computer. The other part of the XML phenotype, which actually allows for you know genotype and all possible information to be passed through XML, is the ability for simulation authors to create not just a means of communication with other simulations, here being you know Noble Ape, Darwin at Home, Brevet, AI Planet, you know, Micropond, Nanopond, et al. It's the ability for someone to run a version of Brevet and know immediately that there are 5,000 other versions of Brevet running, of which 15% are running exactly the same kind of code, and then kind of sharing that power over, you know, over the Internet. So mm -hmm. the beauty of the XML phenotype is it's not just about communicating with other kinds of simulations, it's also about communicating within simulations over, in this case, the Internet. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the broader strength in terms of faster, better. It's just thinking about the way in which simulations are written with the context that it is no longer just an isolated simulation run on a single computer, but it is, in fact, a kind of broad network of in one case, the same simulations, in another case, a broader group of simulations that can accept some of the, you know, the simulations um, shared uh, information. And I think that's another powerful thing that really hasn't been described actively through Bioterry, but certainly I'm thinking about with regards to my own development. And obviously, you know, Gerald's been talking about that kind of idea um, for for a couple of years now as well. So, I mean, does that make sense to you? I think it does. Are you essentially talking about Biota Eve as being a platform for kind of a distributed simulation? 
Well, a bit of both. I mean, I think this is the nature of this kind of project. I mean, the idea initially is that it will be all all the contributing authors' responsibilities to write, obviously, initially the file-saving and then file-reading component. But as this idea becomes spread over the internet, then it becomes, you know, UDP, TCP, IP kind of communication, you know, so XML packets kind of sent between not only, you know, the same simulations run on multiple machines, but also, you know, other simulations that are running. And I think that's where it gets really interesting in terms of how the, the XML information is used. But, I mean, obviously, this is kind of, you know, 10, 15 steps ahead uh, part of the process, but I think it certainly answers your um, concerns with regards to how this will actually make better simulations in the long run. Okay, well, that that makes sense as a vision. I mean, it's, it's really... Uh... It's helpful to, to, for me to sort of understand the level at which Biota is now, and, and you're describing it as, as almost like first steps. Exactly. You know, so that's, that's useful. And um, I'm not sure if you heard um, Gerald's discussion with regards to the Evo grid in the last Biota Live, but I think his point with regards to the Evo grid, specifically moving from Biota Eve now to the Evo grid, formerly known as Evo Grid Deep, the ideas within the Evo grid are not even as, as strong or well-formed as what we're describing with regards to Biota Eve currently. But, I mean, in terms of um, artificial chemistry moving into artificial life, I mean, as that is an abstract idea, what kind of vision do you have associated with the potential for the Evo grid? You're talking specific, okay, the Evo grid. I, I have to keep reorienting myself. So this this is the idea that we would simulate an artificial chemistry in which it would be hoped that life would spontaneously emerge. I guess that's the broadest possible definition, but I mean, if you have your own vision within that that is more constrictive or even broader, I mean, feel free to feel free sure. to throw it into the mix. Well, I mean, to me, that it, it's it seems like a really interesting exercise. The, uh, there have been a few things that have, have kind of stopped me. Um, with regards to that, one being that, so as as I understand it, part of the goal with the Evo Grid was that we could evolve within a simulation um, some kind of self-replicating chemicals that we might call life, and that those could be then manufactured in the real world, or at least that that's one vision that I that I've understood. Does that line up with your understanding? Well, I mean that's certainly Evo Grid the movie, and okay. I think. This is the um, theme both with regards to actually creating these critters in the real world and also sending them to asteroids on Evo Grid's right. movie, the sequel. Um, so, I mean, I think th they are two um, combined visions, but obviously as you appreciate um, with the kind of baby steps nature of these kind of projects, really there's a lot of stuff that needs to go on to move from even, well, even um, a chemistry, the idea of artificial chemistry, is non-trivial. I found in my bookshelf um, last night, actually, the uh, MIT Press's Artificial Life Journal, the first one for this year, which was dedicated exclusively to A-chemistry, and it reminded me of what Gerald Jung had said about the um, the geometries, that the geometries mm -hmm. for this kind of process were, were really critical. So the Evo grid as it exists now is um, really Peter Newman running a series of existing... Um, atomic and uh, chemical simulations, getting a sense of which of these would be the best base platform to build the Evo grid from. 
Mm. But, I mean, in terms of your own vision, do you think this is the way to start or do you think there is a, there is a better, more a priori way to begin? So one question I have about this, this vision is, uh, you know, why, why attempt to simulate artificial chemistry? You know, what, what advantage does a, a simulation of artificial chemistry have over just a, a big vat of solution in the real world? Because it, it seems to me that, you know, any time you try to try to simulate something, you know, your simulation is just is going to be much slower than the, the thing that you're attempting to simulate in terms of, of the processes. So, and I just, uh, you know, it seems that it took such a long time in such a, a large body of water for, for life to emerge on this planet that I'm, I'm just uh, kind of skeptical that we're going to, you know, see in the simulation of anything like real chemistry that we're, we would expect to see life emerging. So there are two parts of this. The first is to do with the actual world, and the second is to do with possible worlds. And I think within a simulation context, there are certain things that can emerge through both of those. I, too, have concerns associated with the idea that what you do is just create, you know, a simulation of the real world and then wait for life to emerge. I think that, as you say, is a very long-term and very problematic uh, a process, which is, you know, almost certain to be, um, you know, end in um, brilliant and highly expensive failure. But I think what interests me is this ability particularly within, you know, the existing methodologies that we have with low-level artificial life simulation to create possible worlds and then tune the possible world space um, to, to be an environment where, you know, the artificial life chemistry will work a little bit better to move towards life. Now, through this process, obviously, you're also almost, you know, forcing the hand of these things to be created. And I think this is the real kind of, you know, methodological difficulty associated with the Evo grid is uh, there are many shortcuts that could be taken in order to get to, you know, in order to get to the emergence of life. Uh, And I think what interests me with regards to the the visions of the Evo grid series is obviously, you know, I'll be talking to, you know, um, biology folk and philosophy folk and, you know, computer science folk, a wide variety of people. But this is the most important question. I mean, is it just a matter of, as you say, creating some soup associated with the real world and just waiting? Or are there actually underlying simulation principles that can work a lot better? It was interesting talking to Dick Gordon uh, about this specifically because he portrayed, firstly, that we need to start with the real world, but we need to just improve the simulation kind of searching um, almost. So you start with a large body of water and the simulation in part scans through the body of water and finds the areas where it thinks that, you know, there's a higher probability of life to emerge and then, you know, super simulates those areas and potentially darts through the the simulation space in this way. I mean, Mm. I I don't know whether that is particularly convincing, particularly to a sceptical audience. But I think there's potential for a lot of kind of beautiful, you know, simulation methodology to come out of this. I mean, what's your own thinking in this regard? Well, you know, I, I think it's a it's a fine enterprise, and um, I, I I think what you, what you were just talking about was this this idea that the simulation becomes a, a way of of searching for the the most optimal conditions in which uh, you know life could arise. Is that is that basically right? 
Well, I think this is one of the many uh, potential visions of the Evo okay. grid, but I think it addresses the concern that you had in some sure. regard, although it just raises a whole pile of additional concerns. Yeah. I, you know, I, honestly, I mean, I, I, uh, I, I think <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, um, it, it's, it's a little academic uh, for my tastes. You know, that not that there's anything wrong with, with academics or, or sort of understanding the the uh, historical origin of life. Um, it's just not where my particular interests lie. So, so I guess I guess, I guess my feeling about it is, you know, more power to you. So that for the for those who are involved in it, um, you know, it seems like a. I mean, if we can understand better how how life arose, that's. That's a wonderful thing, but um, I guess I, I, my my interest is more in in the the potential of using have the principles of evolution to to solve problems, you know, to as basically a, a substitute for intelligent design and problems that, that we confront. So, and it, it, one issue with the the kind of emergent life approach is that. It seems to me in that case that the what what you're selecting for is for the ability of these simulated organisms to to reproduce like that that's their that that is the fitness function essentially um that's what determines if they're successful or not is if they're actually able to make more copies of themselves and uh I think in a more abstracted kind of evolutionary simulation, you have more freedom. And you can you can specify what the criteria are, and so to, to me that seems like it has more practical applications. <clears throat> I mean, not that you know, not that one is necessarily better than another. It's just, again, you know, where my particular interests are. <laughs>